0: So as you know, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. Uh, that, of course, that book is really a continuation of the story of Israel's monarchy with, that began in 1 Samuel with the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon, and then the divided kingdom, as we recently studied, with Jeroboam in the northern part, and then Rehoboam in the south. And so... Our concentration for today is going to be on the six northern kings that followed Jeroboam. And yes, six kings. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, although and, and as we get through it, you'll see that really not all six could truly claim the couldn't be fully kings. so but as we look at this, just know that over the last couple of weeks we had the opportunity to study, one of the southern kings, Asa, who, as we went through, was kind of like a breath of fresh air, that reformer king that did some very good things, even though, uh, obviously, as we saw last week, he wasn't perfect and had some challenges in the latter part of his reign. Well, unfortunately, that nice fresh air that we got to enjoy is going to turn back sour as we turn our attention back to the northern kingdom and what goes on after Jeroboam's death. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through an introduction today, because I want to emphasize a bit more some of the conclusions as we've had a chance to digest the story and just think through it some. So one thing that I will mention, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I taught, is that as we're approaching the Old Testament, that uh, we need to look at the Old Testament really from a number of different perspectives. And it's interesting, because Justin actually said the same thing this morning in his message. but basically when we're looking at these passages particularly the historical passages there are these different perspectives these books are not just collections of short stories and they're not just you know wrote purely cold academic textbooks either so god has a number of purposes in providing us with these accounts so just by way of reminder as we look at this there's obviously the historical account And that includes the actual facts of the story, as well as how it fits into the larger historical context and the ramifications. Um, But there's some other considerations. One is we can look at it from really what I'm calling the flow of redemptive history. Or to put it another way, what does this passage teach us or point us to Christ? It's like Ephesians 1.10 says, as Paul in Ephesians is recounting the grand plan of redemption talks about that all of it is towards the summing up of all things in Christ. There's also personal application uh, from the standpoint that we have the opportunity to learn personally from these examples that we see. Some of these examples are negative, they're bad, they're things that we should avoid, and some of them are positive, things that we can seek to emulate. And then lastly, there's going to be, a number of historical, I'm sorry, theological truths um, that God wants us to learn. God is putting himself on display in the Old Testament, and he does that deliberately and carefully so that he will receive all the glory. And so as he's doing that, the question is, what can we learn about the nature and character of God through those things? Just as a reminder of where we are I'm going to zoom in a little bit here. Hopefully you can see that. Uh, We have, you see there, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we're going to be looking today at this northern kingdom and these first few kings that follow after Jeroboam. So from a historical standpoint, that's where we are. And so let's go ahead and just jump into the narrative. We're going to be starting today in 1 Kings chapter 15, Picking up the story in verse 25, which begins with Jeroboam's son Nadab ascending to the throne following Jeroboam's death. Oops. Now what did I do? All right. So starting out, what we're going to see here in these first couple of verses is just a summary of Nadab's reign so first Kings chapter 15 verse 25 says now Nadab the son of Jeroboam became king over Israel in the second year of Asa king of Judah and he reigned over Israel two years he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin in which he made Israel sin now we're not told much here Uh, Nadab was likely Jeroboam's second son as Jeroboam's first son, Abijah, had died previously. If you remember that story from a couple of weeks ago, that's the story that's captured in 1 Kings 14. And basically, as a result of Jeroboam's sin, God punished Jeroboam by taking his son. Although, as we discussed, there was a degree of compassion in that because we saw that this was the only one of the king's sons that was afforded a proper burial or a noble burial. And as was the custom, following Jeroboam's death, the next in line is usually the oldest son. So that was likely Nadab. And here he was appointed to the throne and began to reign. And so in these first couple of verses, we're really only told two things. Number one, that his reign was very short. And unfortunately, during his reign, he continued the evil false religious system started by Jeroboam. So like father, like son. Terry noted a couple of weeks ago that the worship system that Jeroboam established continued throughout all the northern kings until the kingdom was overthrown by Assyria in 722 B.C. And so uh, starting right here, Nadab was continuing on just as we're going to see all of the other kings doing. So, and then we're going to learn about what really happened to Nadab here in this next section. So we see here Basha's betrayal and power grab beginning in verse 27 says then Basha the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar conspired against him and Basha struck him down at Gibbethon which belonged to the Philistines while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa king of Judah and reigned in his place. And it came about as soon as he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. He did not leave Jer- to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and which he made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God to the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So the first thing that we see here is this conspiracy that ultimately ended in Nadab's assassination. So we know here from the text that Basha was from the tribe of Issachar. Beyond that, we don't know a whole lot. And we aren't even told why or how this little conspiracy got started, but we can tell that Basha envisioned some kind of a plan to depose Nadab and assume the throne. Now, that word conspire there indicates that Basha was not acting alone. There was likely multiple parties that were involved in this, although likely he would have been the ringleader. It also seems that he was probably part of the army, because he was engaged with Nadab in laying siege to the city of Gibbethon, so likely Basha was a trusted leader, possibly one of the generals of the army. Now, Gibbethon, the city where they were at, is a city on the Mediterranean coastal plain, likely on the border or very near the border of between the northern and southern kingdoms. So it had apparently been conquered and taken over by a group of Philistines that happened to still be dwelling in the land. So Israel wanted to gain back control of it, most likely for strategic defense purposes, given where that city was located. So as we'll find out, they were apparently not successful because we'll see that later on, Basha's son, Ella, also was laying siege to the same city after Basha's death. So the key thing here is that at some point during that siege, Basha was able to get to Nadab and kill him. Then Basha was installed as the new king. And then kind of the first order of business that Basha undertakes is the destruction of Jeroboam's family. So we see here that Basha rose up and murdered all of Nadab's household. Says here that no person was left alive, so that it this seems to include not just the male heirs, which is what typically was done, is just the male heirs would be killed off. But this seems to indicate it went beyond that to include daughters, uncles, potentially extended family, etc. So, this, of course, is a deplorable act. It was something, despite the fact that it was something commonly done when a new dynasty rose to the throne to kill off anyone from the previous family who could potentially lay claim to the throne, despite that common practice that doesn't make it okay. We also know that that's technically what God had ordained and promised would happen to Jeroboam's family as a result of his sin. But, and, and also in many cases, it would, like I mentioned, would just be the male heirs that would be killed, and it seems like Basha went far beyond that. But either way, this was a sinful act on the part of Basha. So the second thing that we see here was that Basha, of course, acting based on his own sinful choices and motivations, was carrying out this plan. (coughs) Despite the fact that he had his own sinful reasons for doing it and was engaging in sin and murder as, as a part of this, nevertheless, his actions were in perfect lockstep with what God had ordained would come upon Jeroboam's household. So Basha did exactly what God said would happen, but we're going to see here in a bit that God is still going to hold him accountable for those sins. So getting into it here, next we get to a summary of Basha's reign. And so this is picking it up in verses 32 to 34. There we read, there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel at Tirzah and reigned 24 years. Of course, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. So three key points here. One, constant war, no peace two he reigned for 24 years and then three he did evil just like jeroboam had done so we also know f- from last week that there's a story that's recorded in second chronicles 16 that can walked this through and the, the focus of that story was of course on asa but basha figured into that story because he went out and began building a couple of key cities on the border between the southern and northern kingdoms and if you remember that story Asa foolishly sought help from Ben-Hadad the king of Aram rather than trusting and seeking the Lord and apparently his strategy in this case worked and Asa pulled his army back to the north to defend against Ben-Hadad's raids but the summary uh, but we don't know a whole lot more about Basha's reign Um, so the summary here is pretty short but there's more that God has to say. So if we look at chapter 16, picking it up in verse 1, there's going to be a pronouncement that God is going to make against Basha. Now the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, Inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and made my people Israel sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will consume Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Any one of Basha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. (coughs) So the point here is that God would not let Basha continue in his sin unchecked. And so he makes several points, several key points in this pronouncement. The first one here is that God is the one who made Israel a leader over, I'm sorry, Basha, a leader over Israel. And this is so important. The people who come into any leadership role in any human government are not there by mistake. This includes sinful people who overtly reject and rebel Against God's authority, just like we see with Basha. And this same point is made several times in Scripture. Romans 13, 1, for example, says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So clearly all authorities, all authorities in human government, number one, are under God's authority first and foremost but they are also established by him. So despite that reality, by the way, there's, there's an inference here that Basha either knew this or seems to have known it or at the very least should have known it. Understanding that God appointed him as a leader over God's people should have caused Basha to recognize God's true authority and then seek his forgiveness and restoration. But, of course, that's not what Basha did. That's not the route that he took. And Despite that reality, Basha chose instead of serving the Lord, he took the opportunity to continue to lead the people into sin following the pattern of Jeroboam. So, finally, as a result, God would treat Basha like Jeroboam. If you want to be like Jeroboam, I'm going to treat you like Jeroboam. And when this judgment would be executed, Basha's children would not even be given proper burials. And that's the point of verse 4 where it says anyone who dies in the city, the dogs will eat and so on. So you would think that Basha would have learned from Jeroboam's fate, but no. And of course, this is so often the case. People can watch others participate in sinful activities and then observe the consequences that befall them, and then go on and engage in the same sinful activities expecting some kind of different result. Or that if they do the same thing, maybe they're going to get some sort of special dispensation that uniquely exempts them from the disaster that's coming. And of course, this is the height of arrogance, to think that you are somehow above the law and that those things don't apply to you or your situation. I'm often amazed in our own culture the aftermath from engaging in certain sins can be severe, and yet the mainstream response is either to deny the consequences or seek to reduce or eliminate the consequences rather than dealing with the real issue. The real issue is that God has established certain repercussions for behaviors that deviate from his revealed will. So the appropriate response is when we see those things to avoid them. Now, of course, I'm gonna, I can talk about our culture, but we do the same things. We do it too. So that's a good reminder for us. Next, we see the summary of Basha's life, death, and God's judgment against him. So verse 5 says, Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might— Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah, and Elah, his son, became king in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, also came against Basha and against his household, both because of the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he struck it. So here, verse 6, briefly records the death and burial of Basha and the fact that his son was elevated to rule in his place. But then in verse 7, the writer here outlined God's judgment against Basha and then records an interesting detail. So he gave here two reasons for God's judgment against Basha. The first, we already know, is that Basha had continued to engage in the same sins that Jeroboam started and was ultimately judged as a result. But the second reason that's recorded is at the end of the verse, which says, because he struck it. Now, begs the question, what on earth did Basha strike? And the language is a little bit cumbersome here, but it actually means that he struck the house of Jeroboam. So this is the interesting part. Because God had ordained that Jeroboam's house would be destroyed, Yet, he still held Basha accountable for the sin that he engaged in when he murdered Jeroboam's family. Now, we're going to talk about that more in a bit, so we'll leave it there for right now. So, moving on, we're going to see a brief summary of Elah's reign, which is in verse 8. It says, In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel at Tirzah and reigned two years. So not a whole lot here. Obviously, Elah ascended to the throne and he only reigned two years. Pretty straightforward. So moving on, we're going to see what happens next, which is Zimri's betrayal and assassination of Elah. So verse 9 says his servant Zimri commander of half his chariots chariots, conspired against him now he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of arza who was over the household at Tirzah. then zimri went in and struck him and put him to death in the 27th year of asa king of judah and became king in his place it came about when he became king as soon as he sat on the throne that he killed all the household of basha he did not leave a single male neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha through Jehu the prophet. For all the sins that Basha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which, were, and which they made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of, of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Starting to feel like history is repeating itself. So here we go again. So we're going to see a conspiracy and an assassination. We learn in this next section that the armies of Israel were actually laying siege to Gebethon. That's not the verses that we see right here, but in the next section... And so, again, the word here for conspired indicates that Zimri was not acting completely alone. There were others that were somehow participating in this plot. Unfortunately for him, we're going to find out that this plot doesn't go well for him. But here's the situation. Israel was encamped against Gibbethon, and Ella was back at home having a grand old time. The phrase, drinking himself drunk, indicates that Elah was flagrantly drinking for the express purpose of getting drunk, which was a practice that was forbidden by the law. Now, we aren't told why Zimri conspired against him and did this, but, I don't know, maybe he was just angry that the king was sitting at home enjoying himself while the army was engaged in battle. We don't know, but whatever it was, Zimri could have just been like Absalom and thought that he could do a better job. Who knows but what we see uh, next is once Zimri assassinates Elah that he assumes the throne and he goes on to destroy Basha's whole family here again it's that scorched earth policy to kill every potential heir of Basha and Elah and this extended to both relatives and friends although maybe Basha had a little bit of restraint because it does mention that it was just the male heirs instead of the whole family. And the writer here also pointed out that Zimri's actions fulfilled what God had stated to Basha. And it also points out that Elah had continued in the sins of his father following the example of Jeroboam. So Elah, despite his short reign, also incurred God's judgment for his part in continuing that sin. So the next thing that we see here is Zimri's reign is going to be rejected. So verse 15 says, In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days at Tirzah. Now the people were camped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines still. Um, Verse 16, The people who were camped heard it and said, Zimri has conspired and has also struck down the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibbethon and besieged Tirzah. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and he died. Because of the sins which he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he did, making Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his conspiracy which he carried out, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So what we see here is that Zimri begins to reign, and word gets out, gets over to the army, and they find out about it, and their first action is, is to say, No way. We're not having this guy as the king. So instead, they install Omri as king. This is totally different from Bash's situation. He was able to assume the throne and keep it, but Zimri was immediately rejected. Somehow, I don't think he thought through his plan very well. Um, As he mentioned, this Conspiracy would have involved multiple people, but it evidently didn't include the right people, at least not from his perspective. And as a result, Omri mobilizes the army against Zemri, and Zemri ends up reigning for a sum total of seven days. Wow. And of course, we're told here that as soon as Zemri realizes that he was doomed, He decided to take his own life by going into the king's house, and I think to spite here, why not take the king's house out too? So he set it on fire while he was still there in it, and he died. Now there's a note here that God had ordained this very early demise precisely because during Zimri's laughably short reign, he continued in, guess whose, Jeroboam's sins. Here again, Zemri had an opportunity to do what was right, despite the short time. Um, he had the chance to do the right thing. He also saw that two dynasties before him had already re- been removed due to those sins. But like the others before him, he didn't recognize the lesson from the Lord. And so the Lord chose not to intervene in preserving his life. I don't know, the question is, will these people ever learn? Of course, we could ask, will we ever learn? Following that, um, there's a power struggle that ensues. So verse 21 says, Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king. The other half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, and Tibni died, and Omri became king." So this is pretty clear. So while Omri had hastily been installed as king, others had different ideas and wanted Tibni to reign I- instead. So there was conflict in the country about who the true president was. Oh, sorry, I mean king. <laughs> Next, we'll get into Omri's, Omri's reign. So beginning in verse 23, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years, and he reigned six years at Tirzah, and he bought the hill Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. And Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins, which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and his might, which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, became king in his place so we see first here that Omri reigned for 12 years now there's a little bit of a note here probably it was longer than 12 years so this 12 years probably starts from when Tibni died um so it seems like the power struggle that occurs but they seem to have counted from that point um so likely he was technically reigning for longer but um while he was formally king over all Israel, was 12 years. So what we see here is that there was a key accomplishment that Omri did, which was purchasing the hill that the city of Samario, Samaria would be built on, and then he began construction on the city. This would actually become the capital city of the northern kingdom for the next 150 years. Now, this was actually a very smart move. Um, the city is built on a pretty significant hill, which was very good from a defensibility perspective. And this city became so prominent that later on, the whole region, as you know, became known as Samaria, again after this city. So that was a pretty key accomplishment. But unfortunately, the real character of his reign were two things that we see. Number one, he, of course, continued in the sins of Jeroboam. However, the writer here states that Omri was worse than all the kings who went before him. Now, it doesn't explicitly state it here, but we know that his son Ahab would be the worst yet, instituting Baal worship, as well as many, many other idolatrous practices, leading Israel into all forms of horrible and heinous sin. So it's Highly likely here that omri actually began to lead israel into these other forms of idolatry Which almost certainly would have included Explicit sexual sin and perversions as we've talked about in the past with these kinds of religious practices So the next thing that we see here is that omri had a son That guy's name was ahab and as we will see and learn over the next several weeks, Ahab is going to bring Israel to the point of horrible, heinous sin and even exert influence over the southern kingdom which brings about a chain of events that, to the point where the line of David is reduced to only one little boy that survives. That's the little child Joash who ultimately becomes king. So Omri's legacy, legacy is... Ahab the disaster so we'll look at the reign of Ahab like I said starting next week (coughs) so that's the story Um, but there's some things that we can draw out from that story even as I was mentioning at the beginning pardon me (coughs) so first off let's just take a look uh, kind of a big picture look at the history of these first seven kings in Israel So first off, they rejected Jeroboam, rejected God's instructions and promises, and then we get idolatry, 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 murder and assassinations, idolatry, drunkenness, idolatry. Tibni, we don't know much, but Omri, idolatry even worse, more idolatry, and even the father of Ahab, who is going to take the country down a far, far worse path. So looking at all of that, isn't that a great legacy? (laughs) This is the northern kings, these first few. So there's some theological truths that we can discern from some of this. Number one, we can see from, even from this passage, but we know from other cases as well, that there are some sinners who enjoy a long and prosperous life, right? Others encounter judgment very quickly. So we see in... Jeroboam that he was allowed to reign for 22 years, Basha for 24 years, and Zimri seven days. No sinner is guaranteed another minute to live. So every hour of a sinner's life is an expression of the kindness and compassion of God. It's an important thing to recognize. Secondly, it's God that sovereignly ordains all governmental leaders, even when those leaders use sinful means to acquire power. Sort of correlated as well. Even the sinful actions by governmental leaders are not outside the sovereign control of God and are in fact used by God to accomplish his purposes at the same time. God is never the cause of their sin. They do that all on their own. They don't need any help. fourthly that even though God may allow sinful actions as part of his sovereign plans he still holds sinners accountable for their sinful choices and actions we see that in the case of Basha where uh was God that ordained that the house of Jeroboam would be destroyed but he also held Basha accountable for his part in it for that part in the murder of Jeroboam's house Now, I think there's an interesting contrast that we can see um, because there was another king, came before, that was chosen to be king after another king was rejected, and yet he never lifted a finger against that first king. Of course, that's the story of David and Saul, where David absolutely refused to do anything to harm Saul, even though he could have. So there's also some personal applications. Number one, we can look at Omri specifically, was the father of Ahab. That was a disaster. But we can look at all of the other ones, Jeroboam, the father of Nadab, or Basha, the father of Elah. And what we see in this is that fathers need to recognize that our children will often follow in our footsteps. And so the examples that we set, whether good or bad, will likely be followed. And this is a good reminder that we as fathers need to lead our families in accordance to what God has outlined in Scripture. You need to be actively engaged in teaching the truth to your children, both in word and example. Secondly, when we sin, we should understand that it's not just us who endure the consequences for sin. Often, sin impacts those around us and those that we love. So it's an encouragement for us to strive to please the Lord in everything. And then lastly, man, this story is just resounding with this this lesson that we need to learn from the example of those that have gone before us. I'm reminded of a motivational, or it's actually a demotivational poster where there's a shipwreck, and it said, it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning for others. That's these kings. They are here to serve as a warning for us, and we should take the lesson. So the last question I have here is, how does this passage point us to Christ? Now, in the song that Tom wrote entitled, God Has Magnified His Word, there's a verse that says, from every verse on every page, there is a path that leads to heaven's Lord and Calvary's Lamb, To him who died for me. So that statement there highlights the great reality that the Bible is ultimately pointing to our glorious and exalted Lord. So the question is how does a passage like this point us to Christ? And there are a number of different ways, but there's only one that I want to focus on for right now. So taking just a little bit of a step back, I think one of the main points that we see throughout all of biblical history is that God is demonstrating the complete and utter inadequacy of human leaders to successfully lead his people in righteousness. What we see here in these kings of Israel is really a microcosm of what is true of every human government that rejects the word and rejects the Lord. Every society, every nation... Every people group have gone this direction. While there's, of course, some rare bright spots in history that maybe for a time enjoyed some unparalleled blessing and prosperity, those bright spots were always short-lived. They've always been short-lived. They never last. And if there was ever a nation that had the best chance, the best opportunity to do what God wanted from a human government perspective. It was Israel. Their advantage, as Paul says, a little bit different context, but their advantage, as Paul says, was great in every respect. They were entrusted with the law of God, the written speech of the Holy One. And God, through the law, provided all the instructions they needed to live holy before him, including processes to address failures along with his unfailing promises that if they sinned and then repented that he would eagerly return to them and bless them so the best possible shot at a holy and righteous nation failed miserably over and over and over again so for today i just wanted to look briefly at a comparison of the legacy of these first kings of Israel, and think about it again as a microcosm of truly every nation and people that reject the Lord, and then compare that to what's something that we're looking forward to that'll be very, very different. So let's look at these few things that we see from these northern kings. What is their legacy? Number one, it starts here, the rejection of God and his word moves into idolatry that expands and worsens. We're seeing that already with Omri, and we're going to see it reach full, uh, fullness in Ahab. By the way, atheism is idolatry. It's just a different form. We also see prominent and worsening sexual sin and moral decay. It's always the case. There's betrayal and conspiracies at a political level and so on. There's murder and assassinations, family genocide, and really we could say all of that is just a representation of a rejection of the sanctity of human life. It's a rejection of one of God's key commandments in the Ten Commandments. We see leaders given to drunkenness and other forms of pleasure seeking. There's political power struggles that occur, there's pride and arrogance everywhere. There's, of course, a lack of peace. There's no peace on earth. Um, it doesn't exist like the, the, like the Christmas song states. Then no lasting reign or de- dynasty. It all ends. Even the best ones, even the bright ones, descend into this same legacy. So that's the legacy of the northern kings. But that's not the end of God's story. Because he has a plan for a perfect king. And what I went through with this is I had a great time going back and capturing a number of different passages that just talked about the nature and character of the millennial reign of Christ. I have like three and a half pages of verses, like 32 plus passages, and I wasn't even doing all of them. Um, So there's a lot of material in the Old Testament and some in the New as well about this millennial kingdom that we, that we have to look forward to. And what just sticks out to me so profoundly is the utter difference between what Christ's kingdom will be and what every other human government produces. So looking at the nature of Christ's millennial reign, the first thing that we see is Jesus will reign over the whole earth as the only sovereign king. There's no power struggles. And of course, he uses rulers and others under him to mete out his government and and all of that. And if we're in Christ, we'll be participating in that government at that time, but he is the only sovereign true king. We also know that his reign will be characterized by righteousness and justice and, get this one, truth. Do we see a lot of truth in our world today? It's horribly lacking. We see that he will inspire the nations to pursue holiness and praise the Lord. Now, what nation or king inspires other nations to praise the Lord today? It doesn't happen. Maybe to some extent in short periods of time, there will be a worldwide desire to know the Lord and to learn from him. There's Passages that talk about people asking a Jew, are you going to Jerusalem? Can I come too? Because I want to learn. Fascinating. There will be complete peace. No more war at all. Swords will be turned into plowshares and so on. There will be, this one is fascinating to me, there will be a brotherhood between those who are once Israel's enemies so that they will worship together with Israel and be considered God's people as well. There's one of my favorite passages in Isaiah that I think so profoundly uh, demonstrates the character and nature of God is that first one that's listed, Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. And I don't have time to go through it, but what we see in that passage is that the people in, the, in Assyria, which would be modern-day Assyria and some of the northern parts, uh, n- the countries that are northern, north of Israel, and then Egypt are also called, specifically, God's special people. It's fascinating. And, that, and the point is that they worship, they go back and forth through Israel, and they worship together with the people of Israel. There will be profound changes in nature. Diseases, especially childhood diseases, will be eliminated or greatly suppressed, and life will be extended beyond 100 years. There will be healing for those who are blind and lame and deaf and others. The Dead Sea water will become fresh water and will teem with fish. Carnivorous animals will become vegans. And dangerous animals will no longer harm humans. That's why a little boy can put his hand into the nest of a cobra and be okay. Deserts in Israel will bloom and become green. And if you've ever seen pictures of the deserts in Israel, trust me, there is nothing there now. There will be abundant agricultural prosperity. And then lastly, Christ's reign will last for a thousand years on this earth. I think almost as as proof that there is only one way to rule. And that's through Christ and through what he accomplishes. So in closing here, if you were to ask me what my favorite verse in all the scripture is, of course, I'd be. that's tough and it probably varies from day to day. But um, certainly one of them that's at the very top is this one. It's Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, which says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Imagine that. And he will reign forever and ever. Amen? It's to that great day that we look forward. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have given us your scriptures and that contained within the scriptures, there are things that are difficult to see, that are difficult to understand, that remind us in some ways of ourselves but we know that there's a direction that all of it is moving towards. And that direction is the summing up of all things in Christ. Lord, we look forward to that day, the day that he will come, that he will reign in Zion, when Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, when there will be holiness and righteousness that prevails across the globe, when the worship of you and the worship of our Lord will resound in all people groups and Lord we long for and look forward to that day we pray that Jesus himself would come quickly we ask these things in the name in his precious name amen